Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 138 Masks. This week, we're going to do a tour that links into Bad GM's campaign build along, and it's because the game we're covering today is the game my group is playing instead of the game we're building our campaign for in that podcast. For those who follow the campaign build along, you know my group usually plays what we've been building, and I give campaign recaps to provide feedback on how what we've built has worked in practice. Sort of an alpha test, if you will, or a beta test, depending on your definition. This season, we're not doing that, and that's because my friend and fellow group member Jim is running a game, and the game he chose is the subject of our show today. So, rather than continue to talk about my game group and Bad GM Productions' other fine podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts, by the way, let's get the tour bus cranked up and start talking about masks. Masks was designed by Brendan Conway and released by Magpie Games in 2011. Illustrations for the release were handled by Michael Lee Lunsford with additional artwork and colors from Brooke Caraval. Masks is a superhero game and it's built on the Powered by the Apocalypse engine. Now, I thought we'd covered that in a previous show, but it appears as if we haven't. But rather than interrupt the narrative here, I'll drop it in at the end of the tour. Cool? Now, before I get too much deeper into the game itself, I did want to mention that the full title of the game is Masks A New Generation, and you should be able to get it at your local game or bookshop. And if you can't and they can't order it for you, you can pick it up in physical form from the Magpie Games website. That's magpiegames.com. Let me spell that for you. M-A-G-P-I-E games.com. It'll run you about 30 bucks, but once I've run through the game itself, I think you'll find that it's well worth it. They've also got a couple of expansions for the game that are about 20 bucks each that provide more character types and adventures. And while I'm not covering those here, I'm told those are also well worth the price. And for those who prefer their game materials in PDF form, Magpie utilizes DriveThruRPG.com as their official PDF provider. And I got my copy of the Masks Core Book for $13. So head over there if what we're about to cover intrigues you at all. One final note before we crack open the book and work through it chapter by chapter. It's rated for teens, is built for a group of three to five players, and is set for adventures to last between two to four hours. In other words, it is built for the short attention span of today's teenagers. Or the slipping attention span of some of us old schoolers. I mean, I know how some of us... Oh look, squirrel! Anyway, let's check out Masks, A New Generation. I think we need to start by noting that the second part of that title really explains the overall concept behind the game. These aren't the established seasoned superheroes you'd be expecting to play in your usual superhero role-playing game. These are kids, well, teenagers, ranging in age from about 16 to about 20, most of whom have either just come into their powers or have just started figuring out how to use them in a semi-responsible way. In other words, these are kids learning how to be superheroes. And before you think this is supposed to be all Spider-Man, Ms. Marvel origin story stuff, relax. 
Sure, they are trying to figure out where they fit into the world and whether they're going to be accepted or not, but we're talking about teams of superheroes working together, so we're also talking about bigger stakes. All right, maybe not the best analogy, but it also doesn't have to be cheesy. I can just promise you that the game's not built to be all adult gore and violence. It's built to be more kid-friendly, but not so much so that adults are going to be bored with it. Anyway, enough of my blabbering on. Let's get to some of the background of the world, then we'll move on. Halcyon City is the base for the game, and it's a lot like you'd expect from the major city of a superhero game. It's seen numerous superheroes come and go, as well as more supervillains than you can shake a stick at. It's got more than 10 million citizens spread out throughout multiple neighborhoods, and of course, those are diverse enough to provide a multitude of environments for any game. And Halcyon City is intentionally left basically vague, as GMs are encouraged to make whatever they want it to be. That being said, there are four generations of superheroes laid out in the book, and while it's assumed the game will be set in the fourth, it never hurts to understand the previous three, since the GM might want to incorporate details from the previous generations into their campaign. Let's start by talking about the gold generation. Those would be the heroes born between the 1920s and 1940s. This is the generation that brought America out of the Depression, and it's the first generation with recorded superheroes. The text discusses the concepts of aliens and robots, but notes that criminals, corporations, and politicians were just as often opponents of the superheroes. This generation was fighting more than just the bad guys. Sexism, racism, pretty much every ism you can think of was prevalent. So unless you were a cisgender white dude, you were pretty much laughed at and marginalized. At this time in the game, the heroes of this period have either passed on or have long since retired. If by chance they're still active, they are desperately trying to reclaim their old glory or success and probably not doing a very good job of it or then again, maybe they are. I mean, who knows? Next up, we've got the Silver Generation. These would be the folks born from the 1950s through the 1960s. During this period, there was a shift in the power level of superheroes, and they became more powerful somehow. And because of that, their enemies also became more powerful and more dangerous, as you'd imagine. This meant the battles of this age could level entire city blocks, change the color of the sky for days on end, or leave the smell of ozone in the air or smoke in the sky for an extended period of time. That being said, Halcyon City became rather adept at repairing itself and getting back to normal at a rapid speed rather quickly. It was during this age that the push for equality began, and those who'd been marginalized and maligned during the previous generation began to see themselves finally begin to get the recognition and respect they'd earned and deserved. Some of those folks also started taking on political roles, not the heroes necessarily, but the citizens of the city. That being said, the heroes of the period tended to stay away from the social issues and focused their attention towards the more powerful creatures and enemies that seemed to keep cropping up to oppose them. That meant that some of the more nefarious organizations that began to form could do so and only occasionally found themselves in the crosshairs of the superheroes. 
Now, there's still a good number of the Silver Generation heroes active today, though most of them realize they're reaching the end of their careers. Their primary goal before retirement is to find successors that they can mold into exact duplicates of themselves, as it were, so that things can continue to be exactly the way that they have been. (laughs) Good luck with that. So let's talk about the Bronze Generation. These are the folks born between the 1970s and 1980s. In the real world, that would probably be the majority of us listening to this particular podcast. You know, Gen X. In the game text, it's noted that the Bronze Generation is known as a more complicated and ambiguous period. And it has a single moment that has a transition point from the Silver Generation. Now, I'm not going to quote it directly from the text, but I'll summarize it from the text. The basic idea was that a younger hero named Quintessence, who was working in the style of the Silver Generation, was threatened by Silensis, who targeted Quintessence under the hero's real-life identity of Neal Collins. Silensis kidnapped Collins' best friend Sam Reed, and during the battle between the hero and villain, Silensis tossed Reed from the top of one of the tallest buildings in Halcyon City. As you'd expect, Quintessence shot down the side of the building to save his friend, but Reed was dead when they landed. Now, nobody's for sure what killed Reed. Was he dead when Silensis tossed him? Did he hit the building on the way down? Did the force of the sudden stop when Quintessence hit the brakes kill him? Eh, nobody's for sure. What is sure is that Reed died because he was friends with Neal Collins, which meant he was friends with Quintessence. That sent shockwaves through the younger heroes who began to question the grandiose methods superheroes of the Silver Generation had been using to that point. So, the younger generation decided to withdraw a bit. They're still heroes, but instead of trying to be in the spotlight and focus on spouting ideals and not really changing anything, they're working to actually change things. Now, sure, some of them do speak out publicly, but when they do so, it's to shine a light on causes that focus on making real change for the citizens. Otherwise, they put their noses to the proverbial grindstone and work to make life better for the everyday citizens of the city and work to protect them for those who would do them harm. As the book notes, the Silver Generation might be the ones in high position of power, but the Bronze Generation has found their own ways to have power, and they're working to seize the reins from the Silver Generation and change Halcyon City and the rest of the country for the better as the Silver Generation heads for retirement. This leads us to the Modern Generation, which encompasses those born from the 1990s to today, though I'd argue that since today is 2024, we might want to crank the 1990s into the Bronze Generation and start modern at 2020, though maybe that's nitpicking a bit. Anyway, this is the generation of heroes your group will be playing. They're the heroes that are starting to make their way in the world. They've heard all the stories about the Gold Generation. They've seen the Silver Generation in action, and they have a pretty good idea about how badly they've screwed things up or how well they've done things, depending on one's perspective. They're also well aware of what the Bronze Generation's up to. So, much like Millennials, Gen Xers, and Gen Zers in our own time, They've got a lot of previous generations, successes, failures, and unresolved bullshit floating around in their heads, and they've tried to make sense of it all. They're trying to find their place in it, and they're trying to do all of that while also making sense of all these powers they've picked up in the meantime. That's what's going to make the adventure so much fun. Now, as we move through the book, 
It has a blurb on superhero teams, but I think we all know how those work by this point. I mean, we've all seen Suicide Squad or Avengers, or we've at least read a comic book or two, so I think we're just going to skip through this. There is a piece on Aegis, and that's the Advanced Expert Group for Intervention and Security, and that's the governmental agency for the metahuman world. Needless to say, these guys have the potential to either be an ally of the groups or a pain in the ass, depending on how things work for the group along the way. It's also entirely possible they can be both at the same time. I'd also note that one of the supplement books I referenced earlier is for ages. So if you're interested in learning more, you might want to pick that up as we move along in the book. And yes, I'm basically moving chapter by chapter. That's what I do when I work through a game book on this show. It gets into the basics of what running a session looks like. Look, what you really need to understand about running a session of masks is that it's much more of a R-O-L-E role-playing game and less of an R-O-L-L role-playing game. As the text itself notes, it's a conversation. The characters are speaking with each other. The characters are speaking with the GM, who's either speaking as an NPC or a villain, or he's speaking with a player to discuss what the character will be doing. Regardless, it's a discussion. And what I mean by a discussion is while there is some die rolling, it's a lot about discussing what the character is doing and describing what it is. When we get into the characters in a moment, this will all make some more sense, but it's not so much about what your character can and can't do, but what your character would and wouldn't do. That's what the beauty of this game is. Now, obviously, there will be some things that you just flat out can't do. All superpowers will have limits, but within those limits, who says you can't do a certain thing if you can figure out a way to do what you can do without it being illogical? If you can explain it in a way that's logical and you can do it and you and the GM can both understand it and figure it out in a conversation, who says it isn't possible, right? Now, the rules will also allow down the line for some retconning when it's reasonable, which makes some sense since we are talking about superheroes. And for those who don't get the concept of retconning, just toss it in your Google machine since we haven't really technically gotten 25 pages into the book yet, and I'm already about 2,500 words into the script. One more thing I wanted to note here before we move on, the GM does not roll dice ever. You heard me right on that. Okay, so let's finally get into our characters or heroes as they're called in the game. And in a big change from your standard RPG, you do not create one from scratch. Instead, you choose one from the 10 options they provide, which are called playbooks. They're provided as sheets that can be copied, by the way, so you don't have to use just the ones that you have in the book and you can never be able to play them again. The rules specifically state that each member of the group picks a different playbook since the idea of the game is to focus on group dynamics. And so the mix of characters and styles is just as important as anything else. The choices are the beacon, the bull, the delinquent, the doomed, the Janus, the legacy, the Nova, the outsider, the protege, and the transformed. Now, those might not sound like much on the surface, and you might find yourself saying, but I wanted to play Deadpool. How can I do that? Take a second to think about the names I just read off and think about which one might cover that. If you said the delinquent, you'd be right. And you've probably got an idea of what the rest of these are just from the titles. 
Each playbook allows for the player to choose the character's hero name and real name if the player chooses to have a real name. Once they've done that, they need to choose their look. For the record, I'm playing the beacon in our game, and I'm running him a a little bit like Hawkeye. I've chosen both a hero name and a real name, and I've decided he kind of looks generic. He's one of those people that you forget almost immediately after you see him. And there's a reason for that, but there's no need to bother you with all of that here. Abilities are next on the sheet, but those aren't like you'd get out of a game like D&D. For me, I had six choices, and out of those, I chose bow and trick arrows, then camouflage and stealth. And yes, those were two choices. They were bundled together. They played into the concept I had in my head when I took the beacon. Now, each playbook has its own set of abilities on it, so the choices will be different. And obviously, if you choose to be the beacon, you might choose two different abilities than I chose. That's what makes the game fun. Now, I'd also note that the abilities don't specifically tell you what you can and can't do. So what are trick arrows? I mean, can I make arrows that shoot around corners? Can I make arrows that stick to walls and I can climb up them? Can I hide in tight spots and not be seen? Well, now those are all things we're going to have to explore as we play the game. And even though you might not have chosen something, if there's something you want to try, who says you can't try it? Again, this is about being a superhero. I can tell you this. I don't plan on being someone who necessarily has superpowers, but I do plan on being someone who's got smarts. So having the ability to figure stuff out is something I intend to try to do as frequently as possible. It's not something that's on the sheet, but it's something I've worked out in my character background, and it's something I'll be working into the various discussions during the game. Now, next up, let's talk about labels. Labels are basically your self-image. There are five of them, danger, freak, savior, superior, and mundane. Now, the numbers are set for you in your playbook, but you do get the ability to add a point to one of them at creation so you can shift a number to your advantage depending on how you think your character sees themselves. There's a section for backstory, but since these vary so much between the playbooks, I'm not going to get into them. What I will say is that they're questions you'll answer to help flesh out the character a bit more and figure out your motivations for being a hero. Once you've done that, you get to pick some moves, and these also change depending on your playbook. They're all positive, so this is another one of those things where you'll have a chance to lean into your background and figure out which moves will work for the concept you've got for the character and will be the most fun to play. Trust me, I had a ball figuring this out. This is the part in creation where the group needs to get together now and have a powwow. We had a session zero, so we had this opportunity. Now, the reason for this is because there's a thing in the playbook called when our team first came together. This is the incident that first brought the team together as a team. Each playbook has a question and the group reads their questions so that the group knows which questions are out there. The GM then leads the group through the discussion to work out the entirety of the situation so that the group understands what that event was, how it went, and what each group member's role was in it. And let me tell you something, it gets pretty interesting. Once that's been done, you head back into the playbook because it's time to figure out relationships. Each playbook has two, and they're each different, but they relate to two group members. It's the same with influence, though some playbooks allow for group members to assign influence to three instead of two. And once that's all done, it's game time. 
All right, so we've checked out characters. Let's cover gameplay. Now, I like the phrase that's in the first line of the chapter on gameplay. To do it, you do it. The text says it works like this. Every move has both a mechanical element, which is rolling the dice and charting the results as a full hit, partial hit, or miss, then determining what happens based on the move, and a fictional element. You charge forward and punch someone, for example, or you say something smartass. You can't have one without the other. So you need to be aware that you need one for the other. And the GM should be keeping their eyes and ears open to be aware of this as well, to help you realize when this needs to be taking place. So basic moves are the cornerstone of what you're going to do in masks. Those moves are directly engage a threat, unleash your powers, defend someone, assess the situation, provoke someone, comfort or support someone, pierce someone's mask, take a powerful blow. So directly engaging a threat is exactly what you think it is. Getting up in their grill and getting down to business. This is one of those times you're actually going to be rolling dice, which are D6s, by the way, and two of them. I'm not going to get into the rolls on this because I'm not feeling like getting that specific. It should be noted that in masks, it's not about doing physical damage. So if you're looking for blood and guts, this ain't your game. The idea is to make the bad guys run off or to hold them off long enough for the authorities to come in and arrest them. Just keep that in mind. Unleash your powers. <laughs> I mean, if your name is Nova, I think we know what you're going to be doing here, right? So enough said. Defend somebody. So this is where you're going to do what you can to stop something bad from happening to somebody. And this would typically be defending an NPC against a villain. But hey, it could be stopping a fellow group member from doing something bad. Assess the situation. This is a useful basic move since it gives you the chance to get a feel for the terrain and get specific and useful information about what's going on. In the case of my character, since he's the archer, he's basically overwatch for the group. So having a chance to check out the entire field of play is a necessity. Provoke somebody. <laughs> now, we all know what this means, but there's a caveat to it. You can only provoke someone who would be susceptible to your words. So if they can't hear you or speak your language, you're shit out of luck. Comfort or support someone. The surface idea for this one is simple, but it's also what we'd use for helping somebody take control of their own destiny. So it's got some pretty good use and it can be a pretty subtle thing when it's used properly. Pierce the mask. No, it's not literally seeing under their mask. It's metaphorical. It's seeing beneath the facade they're presenting and figuring out whatever bullshit or nefarious plan they've got figured out. Take a powerful blow. So, when you get hit by that proverbial Mack truck, the GM will tell you to roll this. You don't get to choose it on your own. Sorry. There are discussion of influence and a few other items to wrap up the rules section, but I think you get enough of the idea of what makes this game tick. For me, the idea of playing a superhero game without having to roll dice every two minutes is incredibly appealing, and I'm looking forward to playing this on the regular long term. And I'm going to tell you, I wrote this script a week or so ago. We played this last Saturday night as I'm recording this, and I can tell you it was freaking spectacular. We all loved it. It's an eight-person group, and I'm telling you, it went off flawless. We loved it. We're all looking forward to playing it again. I don't care if you've never played this system. If the, I don't even care if this doesn't sound like it would appeal to you. Pick the book up. Read it. Run it. If you don't love it, you know what? You can call. You can 
uh, reach out to me on the socials and call me every name but a child of God. You're not going to do it. You're going to love it. Trust me. As I said, I've never been this enthusiastic about a game. I swear to God. As I said, you might be able to pick this up in your local game shop or bookstore, but if you can't and they can't order it for you, check out the Magpie Games website, magpiegames.com, or for a PDF version, you can head over to drivethroughrpg.com. All right, so we're probably going to run long, but since we ran way short last week, let me give you what I promised earlier and do a quick rundown of Powered by the Apocalypse. Rather than calling itself a game system, Powered by the Apocalypse refers to itself as a game design framework. Designed by Megway Baker and Vincent Baker, it was designed specifically for the 2010 game Apocalypse World, and that was the year it initially premiered. The entire philosophy behind Powered by the Apocalypse is to center the resolution of character actions on moves instead of roles. So, as we discussed during the Masks Breakdown, Characters have access to a default selection of moves, and those are based on the game setting. And since Powered by the Apocalypse has been used in about 800 different products to this point, let me say that again. It's been used in about 800 different products to this point. There are a lot of settings out there. Dungeon World characters have access to a hack and slash move. Apocalypse World has a seize by force move. And we just covered the mask's basic moves, so you get the pictures. Moves are resolved by rolling 2d6 and adding any relevant modifiers. Success levels have a range, which are total success, partial success, and miss. Partial success tends to mean success at a cost, which means players need to choose a negative outcome at the price of the success. Miss tends to mean that there's a negative outcome that moves the narrative forward rather than just meaning that nothing happens. Like I said when we were discussing masks, the idea is that this is a discussion and the idea is to drive the narrative. And as we discussed earlier, Powered by the Apocalypse games are, for the most part, class-based and character classes have class-specific moves. Emily Van Der Werf noted on Vox.com on April 3rd, 2020 that, quote, In Powered by the Apocalypse games, players roll two six-sided dice to determine whether they succeed or fail at tasks set for them by the Game Master. The GM, in turn, keeps things moving and tries to preserve a modicum of continuity. But the players also have extreme amounts of leeway to help shape the world and their relationships with other characters, end quote. James Hanna posted on CBR on October 14, 2020, and contrasted Powered by the Apocalypse in D&D. Quote, The differences really come down to crunch and conversation. Players looking for a sandbox or linear adventure with lots of crunchy combat will enjoy D&D in all its glorious variety. Those who want a more collaborative storytelling experience with fewer granule choices and probably less math should try Powered by the Apocalypse games. End quote. So we know Masks is one of the games powered by the Apocalypse, as is Apocalypse World. A couple of the others you might have heard of include Avatar Legends, City of Mist, Dungeon World, Cult Divinity Lost, which we covered in a past episode available in the archives, Thirsty Sword Lesbians, another we've covered in a past episode that's available in the archives, and Uncharted Worlds. With that, I think we've got a pretty good tour for today's show, so let's bring it to a close. Next week, we're going to cover another game system. We're going to cover the Adventure Game Engine, 
If you remember, I mentioned that last week when we were talking about Green Ronin's True 20 game system. It's a pretty interesting game system, so you're going to want to check that out. In the meantime, check out Bad GM's campaign build along. This week, we are building characters for our D&D campaign. I realize it might be a bit early to start building characters, but I believe if you build characters, it helps flesh out your campaign world just a little bit. You're going to want to trust me on that one. Bad GM's campaign build along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The theme music for role-playing history is Beyond New Horizons by Gioli Fazeri and is available from pixabay.com. Role-playing history is a production of Bad GM Productions. We've got a presence all over social media, so check out the info box for today's episode to see where you can follow us and drop us a message letting us know what you think of the show and let us know what you'd like to hear us do on a future episode. Like I said, next week we are going to check out the Adventure Game Engine, so... (laughs) Pardon the pun, but it's going to be an interesting adventure. I really got to get better at this. That's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.